0: I'm Robert Cognon, Director of Cognon Ministries International. Please join me today as we look at the events that surrounded the week the Lord was crucified and resurrected almost 2,000 years ago. In doing this, we'll be able to answer the question of many, on what day of the week was our Lord crucified? Rather than an interesting question for scholars, I believe that coming to an understanding of the timing of the events of that week is crucial if we are to better understand the triumphal entry, the Olivet Discourse that was given in that mid part of that week, why the crucifixion occurred on the day that it did, and finally a better understanding of the resurrection. Therefore it is crucial for us to understand how the events of that week fit together in addition to that understanding, I'd like to use this study as we gather together and study the scriptures to demonstrate the historical aspect of the dispensational interpretation known as the literal historical grammatical hermeneutic. Now, as part of that hermeneutic, any study of the life of Jesus Christ requires an understanding of the times and in which he walked upon this earth. This understanding is especially important when we try to coordinate the timing of the events surrounding the triumphal entry, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord. Now, this task would be an easy one if we only had one historical account and if we understood the Jewish world of Jesus' day. However, we have Four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And only a minority of modern Christians take the time to understand the historical aspect of the Jewish world, including the feasts of that week. So in answering the question, on what day of the week was our Lord crucified, I hope to resolve some apparent conflicts of the scriptures about that week and give us a better understanding of the events that surround the Lord's discourse on the Mount Olivet in the middle part of the week and, of course, the crucifixion. Step by step, we will generate a chronology of that week, and in doing so, we'll resolve some of what are called conflicts of Scripture. And we'll see there really are few, if any, conflicts, in fact, none in the Scriptures. Additionally, our study will bring to light some of the distinctively Jewish historical aspects found in them. Prior to our study of the chronology, we must consider two aspects of living in first century Jerusalem. First of all, we need to realize that the Jewish world was in a different time zone than the rest of the world. Secondly, we need to understand the significance of the observance of the Feast of the Lord, recorded in Leviticus 23, the three feasts of the seven that actually occurred during that week. The Jewish culture of first century Israel remember coexisted alongside the Gentile Roman pagan culture. Each culture had its own time reckoning. Now, the Jewish world began a new day at sunset. Thus, the Jewish day began with 12 hours of night, followed by 12 hours of day. Now, since the events we're talking about occurred in the spring, That's absolutely correct, for the day was about even darkness and lightness. Also, always remember that as you read in the scriptures, phrases that refer to the evening, they're referring perhaps to the very next day from previous events just recorded in that afternoon. Thus, in reference to the Passover, we read the evening of the 14th. Remember, it doesn't refer to the end of the day, but rather the beginning of the very next day. Now, our modern association of evening uh, with the end of day occurring at midnight tends to make us forget this. This is a significant difference, though, in the timing of the events during the week. Now, the Jewish people based their timing of starting the day in darkness upon the fact that when God created the world, it was created in darkness. And then, as the first day came to an end, it was light, Genesis 1-5. Now, that was significant. God had purpose in starting the world in darkness, and then the day would then continue on into daylight. That is, first of all, to symbolize the tremendous darkness of the world, without the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It also would symbolize to us, and we'll see this in the chronology, the the, the sadness, the darkness that overlaid the disciples of Jesus Christ as they laid him in the grave, hoping and waiting for the resurrection. And then on Sunday, in daylight, they saw their Lord risen from the dead. Now, the Roman world, on the other hand, they reckon the start of the day at midnight, 12 a.m., just as we do today. Any consideration of the chronological references in the Gospels must take into consideration the differences of these distinctive time zones. Thus, we need to think in the Jewish time zone as we read the scriptural accounts in the Gospels and certainly not our time zone. So if you read in the gospel that something occurred in the evening, we tend to say, oh, that's still today. No, if it was before midnight, it really was a reference to the very next day. Now, I've prepared a chart, which is relatively complex. You remember, I'm an engineer. But I think if you take the time to study it, it will really help you to understand these changes these different time zones and other effects of different days of the week from the way we tend to think. Uh, This chart is available at our website for download so that you can have it and then compare it. You may want to either stop this video, download the chart, or after you watch the video be sure to download the chart and it'll give you better understanding of the events of that week. Now in our chart I show several things. At the very top of the chart, we have the various days of the crucifixion week. And I start out by showing really two different time zones. I show the nighttime as the blue sky, obviously, but then at sunrise, the sun comes up, the yellow representing the day, and then that continues till the sunset. Now, remember, if we look at Monday on this chart, you'll see that our day starts at midnight of what we'd call Monday, and then we come to the daytime, and then sunset comes, and night comes at midnight, and that day ends. But in reality, Nisan 10, which is the, let's call it the Jewish Monday, it began at sunset. So all 12 hours of night, and then 12 hours of sunlight, when the sun went down at sunset, that was the start of Nisan 11, the next day. So you can use this chart if you will, to coordinate between Jewish days and dates to how we think of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So that's to help you. Now, just below that line where we give the Nisan dates, Nisan being the first month of the Jewish year, I've also put how the Israelis called these days. For instance, what we tend to think of as Sunday is the first day of the week. Because the last day of the week, what we think of as Saturday, that was the Sabbath. That was the seventh day. So right underneath the Nisan dates, I have put what day of the week that was in the Jewish terms. So I think if you look at the chart, it'll be very clear and you'll have no trouble keeping track of these events and specifically the times and days of Christ's time. Now again, this time difference is significant When we add the dimension of the Feast of the Lord that occurred during that week, the events of the crucifixion interacted with three separate and distinct feasts that week. Now here's a problem for many. Many Bible commentators confuse the chronology of this week and create actually interpretational difficulties because of their very limited understanding of the feasts. It's my hope that this study we do together will eliminate some of that confusion for you. For instance, when one speaks of the crucifixion week, people generally think solely of the feast of Passover. Little, if any mention, is made of the two other feasts that sequentially followed Passover. For after the day of Passover came, the beginning of the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, and after the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the very next day is the start and the day of the Feast of First Fruits. In Leviticus chapter 23, one of your favorite books, I'm sure, outlines the seven annual feasts of the Lord. I would urge you to watch our video series on the feasts of the Lord to get a better understanding how significant these feasts are. Interestingly, almost every chapter of the Gospel of John makes some reference or inference to the feasts. If you understand the feasts, it'll give you an expanded understanding of the Gospel of John as you read it, once you study the feasts. Now, each of the seven feasts that God gave to Israel reflect a momentous historical event in Israel's past or in their yet to be fulfilled future. It will also teach a doctrinal truth. And finally, because of the prophetic nature of the feasts, four of which have historical events that have occurred, but three of which have future prophetic application, We can look at the feasts by the ones that are fulfilled and know where we are in God's plan for history. Now, God proclaims the first feast as Passover. And in these are the feasts of the Lord. He says, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the 14th day of the first month at even, is the Lord's Passover. That's Leviticus 23, verses 4 and 5. Notice, first of all, it is on the 14th day of the first month. Uh, On our website, we also have a circular calendar that allows you to compare when God calls something a month number, like the first month, to find out what that might be called elsewhere in Scripture, for there's actually four calendars used in our Bible. So the first month is Nisan, And on the 14th day of the first month is Passover begins. Now, if you look at my chart, I've got it up here. If you look at our chart here, you'll see that if you go down to Nisan 14 and you go straight down, you'll see that I have shown Passover. Now, notice in Leviticus 23, 4 and 5, it says on the 14th day of the first month at even. Now, that at even means at sunset. So we go, Nisan 14, sixth day of the week, Passover. If you go up to the top, you see sunset is when Passover began. So for 12 hours of darkness would still be Passover. And the next 12 hours, the next day, will be also Passover day by the Jewish Reckoning. So I urge you to look at the chart and you'll see how they start fitting. Now, the distinct feast of unleavened bread begins the following evening at the start of the 15th day. And it will continue for seven days, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 6 through 8, where we read, And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. In the first day ye shall have an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. And in the seventh day is an holy convocation, You shall do no servile work therein. You see, here's what God is telling the Jewish people. Immediately after the start of unleavened bread, you will observe this for seven days. So it's not just a one-day feast. So they've just had Passover. That's great. That's a great holiday. And they start another, a seven-day feast. But immediately after the first day of unleavened bread, comes the Feast of First Fruits. Notice that comes on Nisan 16, Feast of First Fruits. So we not only have Passover, we have unleavened bread beginning and will proceed for seven days, and we now, the next day, have another feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And that's recorded in Leviticus 23 verses 9 through 14. As you can see, these three Days are busy times in Israel. But notice also that the second day of unleavened bread shares its observance with the feast of first fruits. You see that? So what you have is unleavened breads on Nicene 15. It's going to continue the first days of the 15th. The second day of Unleavened Bread is the 16th, but it's also the day of first fruits. So these two feasts, if you will, are on top of each other. Now, historically, Passover gained preeminence among the Jewish people. This is due to its association with one of Israel's greatest national historical events, the Exodus. Because Passover eclipsed the other two feasts in popularity, the three feasts merged into one in most people's minds. Therefore, some of the gospel references to Passover can actually refer to one of the other two feasts. So you must read those carefully when there's a reference to Passover. Further, you will note that the weekly Sabbath of this week, that's on Nisan 15, The first day was also the first day of unleavened bread on Nisan 15. That feast began with a holy convocation with no servile work. That's an alternative phrase used by the Jewish people to refer to a Sabbath, a ceasing from work. So what we have is that the weekly Sabbath this is the 15th of Nisan, the seventh day of the week, also fell on the first day of unleavened bread, which was a feast Sabbath. You see, we have to remember, there are several Sabbaths in the scriptures that are labeled Sabbath or Holy Convocation and no servile work. Thus we have the weekly Sabbath, we also have a sabbatical year. That's after seven, every seventh year the land was to rest, according to Leviticus 25, verse 4. That's called a sabbatical year. The whole year is a Sabbath. And then every 50 years we have the Jubilee Sabbath occurring according to Leviticus 25, verse 8. Now, because the feasts often, often use the term either Sabbath or Holy Convocation, we have several feast Sabbaths throughout the Jewish year. Now, with the exception of the weekly Sabbath, all other Sabbaths can occur on any day of the week and not just on the seventh day, which is our Saturday. Thus, you can have Sabbaths on top of Sabbaths. If one of the holy convocations coincided with the regular weekly Sabbath, it was a double or overlapping two Sabbaths one day. Thus, in this time, the first day of Unleavened Bread occurred also on the seventh day or the weekly Sabbath. Because they were on top of each other, the Jewish expression was that this was a high day. That meant two Sabbaths on the same day. As a result, this particular Nisan 15, with its double or overlapping Sabbaths, commonly would be called a high Sabbath by the Jewish people. Thus we read in the Gospel of John, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, and then John adds in parentheses, for that Sabbath day was a high day. That means two Sabbaths, a feast Sabbath. Because it was the Sabbath day was a high day, they besought Pilate that their legs be, might be broken and that they might be taken away. In other words, according to John 19, verse 31, They went to Pilate and said, you know, today's the preparation for a high or double Sabbath tomorrow. We can't have these prisoners up on the crosses break their legs so they'll die almost immediately and they'll be taken down because they can't be up there on a high Sabbath. Based on this statement alone, plus many other scripture references, we see that Christ died on Passover, He died on Passover, which was also the day of preparing for the high Sabbath, the two Sabbaths, one day, which would be the day before, now Passover would be the day before the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Wow. John's outlined it for us very clearly here. Now, with this background, let us now begin to create the chronology of the week in which our Lord was crucified. Christians would argue that the resurrection occurred on the first day of the week. For we read in the scriptures, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. This is in Luke 24, verse 1. You'll recognize quickly. This is when the women came to the tomb to to put spices on Christ's body. So it was very early in the morning. Now, if we move down to Luke 24, verse 21, we read of the story of two people, two disciples uh, or learners, students under the Lord. They were on the road back to Emmaus and they met with the Lord, walking with them. They didn't know it was the Lord in the afternoon of the resurrection. And notice carefully what they say here and record in Luke. They are saying to this unknown person walking next to him, who is the risen Lord, same day, they said, But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. Catch that? They are saying on this same day, this is the afternoon of the resurrection. They're calling it on the third day. uh, He is resurrected because the women went this morning to the tomb and he's gone. He's resurrected. So we have a clear label given here that the resurrection day is called the third day. In addition to it being the first day of the week. Thus, from this account, we conclude that the resurrection occurred on the first day of the week and that this was the third day since the crucifixion. Now, in Mark 8.31, we read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Constantly, the repetitive term in the scripture is three days, the third day. In Matthew 16, 21, 17, 2019, Luke 24, 7, verse 21, 1 Corinthians fifteen four are just examples where we read that Christ arose on the third day. If we take all these references together, We conclude that Christ was crucified on Passover, the sixth day of the Jewish week, which was Nisan 14, our day of the week, Friday. It is at this point, though, that we now have a problem. For we turn over in Matthew, in chapter 12, in verse 40, and we hear the Lord's very own words, where he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh-oh. Three days, three nights. Based on this verse, some Bible students have rejected their traditional Good Friday observance. In favor of placing the crucifixion as occurring as either a Wednesday or a Thursday, depending how they want to count three days three nights. They argue that this verse must be taken literally, exactly what it says, that a day and a night must indicate a 24-hour period, and thus the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection must be three 24-hour days or part of three days and all of three nights. On the surface, this argument seems reasonable. So let us see how they arrive at thursday as the day of the crucifixion now everyone agrees that jesus christ rose on the morning of nisan 16 that was the first day of the week so if we start at nisan 16 in the morning and go back 24 hours we come to the morning of nisan the 15th that's one daylight period and one night period we go back an additional 24 hours to Nissan 14 in the morning. We now have two daylight periods and two night periods. We go back to Nissan 13, and what we come up with is the day of Nysan 13, the nighttime of Nisan 13, so that's the first night, then the nighttime of Nissan 14, that's the second night, and the night of Nisan 15 that's the third night so now we see that on Thursday the 13th of Nisan we start counting we get 3 days and 3 nights with the crucifixion on Thursday thus based upon Matthew 12:40 we must accept that Christ was in the grave on Thursday thus based upon Matthew 12:40 alone we must accept that Jesus Christ was crucified on Thursday and placed in the grave. But this conflicts with John's record in chapter 19, which indicates that Friday afternoon, the preparation time before the high Sabbath, that Christ died. Thus, we have this conflict. We have to consider the feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and feast of first fruit. We have to consider a high Sabbath or two Sabbaths on one day, which was Saturday. So we need to see how this happens. And this is what they call a conflict of Scripture. Now I smile because there aren't conflicts. You see, God's Word and God can't contradict himself. All passages, including three days and three nights, must refer to the very same time span between Christ's death and his resurrection. Hence, either we are misunderstanding Matthew's phrase and perhaps putting our thinking of the modern culture into the Jewish thinking, or the Bible does contradict itself. (laughs) Thankfully, the Bible not only doesn't contradict itself, but it clearly defines what is meant by the phrase the third day used in Luke thirteen thirty-two and 33 expressed by our Lord during this very week because in Luke 13, verse 32, our Lord said, Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow and the third day. There's that phrase, third day. I shall be perfected or completed. Nevertheless, I must walk today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So here he's telling the people and his disciples that he will have to die in Jerusalem, and he's saying it will be on the third day, which is today, the day after tomorrow, and that day is the third day. Three days mentioned the day in which he is stating this in luke 13:32 the next day which is tomorrow and then it's the third day that he was resurrected in other words his use of the third day is to say the day after tomorrow i'll be resurrected the same expression is used even in the old testament Back in Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, use it in a similar way. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 12, it says that we have a certain Egyptian who had not eaten bread and drunk water for three days and three nights. Yet as we read the context of verse 12 and 13, we see that in reality it was only three days and two nights. Let let me read it. And they found an Egyptian in the field. They brought him to David and gave him bread. And he did eat, and they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. When he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. In other words, he revived. And he says, he had not eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. Phrase sound familiar? Same phrase used of Jonah. And we read on, And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou, and whence art thou? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me because three days, three days agone, fell I sick, fell sick. Now, without getting into the Hebrew grammar and into the Greek words, I'm going to say simply it reads because three days or the third day he had been sick. So in other words, he got sick, he had a night, he was sick, he had a night, third day was when David finds him, feeds him, and he's feeling better. So we have three days and three nights referred to, but just the third day as the day. Now, in Esther chapter four, verse 16, Esther says that she and her maidens will fast three days and three nights before she goes before the king. She's told to go gather together all the Jews that are present in Sushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days or night. Night or day. She says, I also my maidens will fast likewise and so will I go in unto the king which is not according to the law and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him yet it was on the third day, that means just two nights, that Esther went into the king. She didn't go on the fourth day, no. She fasted for three daylights, two night times. The third day is the day she went in. So if we took this expression literally, we find that it is on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. Esther's 4, verse 16, and read through verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, interestingly, the Jewish Talmud, now, you know, I'll check it out and I'll read it. I don't believe it's inspired. It was not inspired. Only our Bible is inspired. But it's a good commentary of Jewish thinking. The Jewish Talmud tells us that Jewish thinking sees a day and a night together as a complete unit of time. A day and any part of a period is counted as a whole day, a day and a night, according to the Jewish Talmud. So in other words, what they're saying to us is if I say that today I'm doing something and in the middle of the night I stopped doing it, they would still say that's a day and a night, even though I didn't do it all the way into the sunlight the next day. They lumped day, light time, and dark time of a day and night as one. Now back where the phrase is used in Luke 13 and in Matthew 12, it's a Jewish idiom of the day. According to this Jewish idiom, Any part, looking at our passage or our period of time here, of Friday, that's the today. The whole of Saturday, that's the night and the daytime, that's called tomorrow. And any part of Sunday, be it just the night or a part of the sun, uh, the sunlight time, that's called the third day. That would be considered three days and three nights. You see that? The idiom does not require require three 24-hour periods or 72 hours. It merely requires three days and two nights. Even though you didn't get the third night, you didn't have to by the idiom because it would have been lumped together. Consequently, there is no conflict of scripture. If we view it from the Jewish use of the idiom of that day. We conclude then that our Lord's crucifixion took place on Friday, his resurrection early on Sunday morning. On what day of the week did Christ die on the cross to pay for our sins? It was on Nisan 14, the today. On Nisan 15, he was in the grave. That's the tomorrow that the Lord referred to. And then he rose from the grave on Nisan 16, that would be the day after tomorrow. That's three days and three nights using the idiom of the Jewish world of the Lord's day and supported the fact that it was an idiom by the Old Testament usage and the new. I urge you, to consider all the verses that we've covered here. I urge you to use the chart which we have prepared for you and you'll see how it fits together and explains three days and three nights even though it was three daylights and two darknesses. I hope you have found this chronology helpful. The completed chart again is available at our website That's www.congdenministries.org and it may be downloaded free for your use. I would urge you to look at this chart. As we go at the bottom of it, I have presented the different events of that week. It actually began on what we call Palm Sunday, but if you look at the day, it began on Nisan 9, the first day of the week, He had his meal at Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The very next day, what we call Palm Sunday, was the presentation of Jesus Christ to Israel as King and Messiah. The next day, Nisan 11, 12, and 13, were what were called sort of average days, if you will, although Jerusalem was filled with people. But it's during one of those three days that our Lord took his disciples. They went to the Mount Olivet, And the Lord there gave his Olivet Discourse that would be so significant to the future of the disciples, to the nation of Israel, and to the world. And then as we come to sunset, nice and 14, at even, we have the Passover meal in the upper room with our Lord and his disciples. Immediately following that night, notice it's still dark, was the trial. Then the crucifixion was in daylight, still Nisan 14. Then the Lord was placed in the grave that day, the today. He remained in the grave from sunset all the way through Nisan 15 and into the next day, Nisan 16. And we have resurrection day. And actually, On Nisan 17 is when he probably appeared to the disciples in that upper room again because sunset had occurred. So you can see how they they all fit together. And you say, "Uh, but I am bothered. I think I know how. You say, but Jesus Christ had to die on the cross as the lambs were being slain. Well, it was a beautiful picture because Jesus Christ as the substitute lamb, shed his blood on the cross and took the payment for our sins. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. We all have to pay for our sins. And the Bible tells us to pay for it. The wages of sin is death. But because Jesus Christ on the cross accepted our sins on him as a substitute for us, he could pay for your sins and my sins so that I wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell paying the punishment, the wages of my sins. He took them upon him. And that's what he did at the crucifixion. You say, yes, but but hold it. If, if Passover begins at sunset with the meal, then the lamb had to have been slain just before that afternoon. And that's correct. But you see, the Lord explained at the Passover meal that he was the bread of life. His body was to be the sacrifice. His shed blood was to pay for the sins of all of us. Therefore, if you will, he had to explain that clearly to his disciples because within hours they were going to witness that very event. And I think it's very significant to always keep in mind what our Lord said in that upper room to his disciples of what he was about to do the very next day. I I love beautiful pictures in the Bible that the the Lord has given us, but let's not necessarily change facts that don't agree with the scriptures. Our Lord was crucified still on Passover, and all the people who were at that crucifixion witnessing that Those who had heard him preach and were starting to understand it and looking to him to be their substitution, to pay for their sins, to be their redeemer, they were looking upon him as he went through the streets of Jerusalem, as he went to that hill, as he went upon the cross, and it all would have come together and the disciples would have seen it and they said, this is the Passover lamb dying for us so God can pass over our sins. And the day after tomorrow would be the resurrection. Jesus Christ came alive again. He proved that he paid for those sins because death could not hold him. Then it was left for one thing to happen to all those people of that day and to you and I today. We need to receive Jesus Christ's substitutionary death for us. He offers that to us as a gift. For by grace are we saved through faith, That not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Nothing I could do, lest any man should boast. You see, to as many as received him, his gift, his substitutionary death, to them gave he power to become the children of God. I hope that you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have not, either contact us or talk to a pastor or someone you know who is truly reads the scriptures and truly understands them. And they can show you how easy you can receive Jesus Christ as your savior. And then this resurrection Sunday will be a joyous day for he is your Lord. And like he was resurrected on the day of first fruits, you will be resurrected one day to be with him and spend eternity with him forever. That's my prayer for you. If you do know him as Lord, Think what he did on those three days, what he did for you, what he did for me. May the Lord bless you, not only this Resurrection Sunday, but every Sunday where we observe the Resurrection, may he bless you mightily. Now, until we see you again, either here or in the air, may the Lord bless you.